By the way, when we say the lowest interest rates in history, Frances Donald did something interesting the other day. She put out a piece that it really is the lowest interest rates in the history of the world, because she can go back and study that in the Babylonian civilizations 5,000 years ago, interest rates ran around 4%. Like there was interest back then. Mm -hmm. So they ran around 4%. So, so bankers have been here forever. <laughs> well, lending. Lending has been Banking is actually like a renaissance concept. But yeah, there's been interest on stuff. There's been interest charged on lent something for 5,000 years. And the lowest 4,000, 5,000 years ago was 4%. When we say lowest rates in history, we ain't fooling. We can These say the lowest rates in 5,000 years, just compared to Babylonian. 5, that would be a great marketing money. piece. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation. Scott Peckford here. Today on the show, I have Ron Butler. Ron is one of my favorite guests to have on because he's got great insights. He has an opinion, and we just have fantastic discussions. You can check back some of the other episodes that we've done together. And one of the things about Ron and I, like before we even turn the recorder, I always learn something new when I have these conversations with Ron. So today I said to Ron, like there's three things I want to talk about and get your insights on. First was the stress test that recently came out. How's it going to affect the market? Is it going to affect the market? You know, what is the overall impact that he sees us having? The second is this idea of a housing bubble. Why are house prices going up like crazy in every single market across the country? We dive into that a little bit. And then finally, we talk about, you know, what tech do mortgage brokers, you know, have to be worried about or what's going to disrupt the mortgage business. And I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation I with Ron. I know I always like chatting with him and just getting his insights. Also in this episode on the Ask the Expert segment, I have Loren Bell from Hired in Seven Days. We go through the question of how much should I pay my assistant? Loren has hired close to 80 assistants now and amazing at it and got some insights for you in terms of question that comes up all the time is how much should I should pay? So check that out. And thanks again for checking out this episode. If you're in the mortgage business and you're like, man, I want to scale my business, you can check out our academy, 10loansamonth.com. We open it up once a quarter based on availability. We've got some amazing coaches and programs in there. Just go to 10loansamonth.com to check that out. And thanks again for checking out this episode. Hey, Ron, welcome back to the show. Hey, Scott, thanks for having me. First of all, shout out to Scott. Scott, you've been more productive in the last three months. I've seen more video. I've seen more programs and offers out of you in the last three months than saw in the last 18 months. So oh, just, thank you for that. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's been, I got a good it. team. I got a good team. So you are killing it. Okay. I want to talk about stress tests. So this is something that just came into effect. I want to know sort of, I guess, what are your thoughts on, was it a good call? That's the first question. The second question is what is going to be the intended and unintended consequences of the stress test? Well, since it's, you know, it's already happened, the majority of the consequences are over. So the consequences are it created a bump in mortgage activity. Every mortgage worker will tell you for the last two weeks, they've had more pre-approvals than they had in the last six months. I mean, it's just been berserk for pre-approvals. Absolutely crazy. Most of which will turn out to be nothing. So it's a huge bump in workload with a small return. The stress test itself reduces mortgage purchasing power by 4.3%. So I don't think anybody in their right mind could call that mortgage apocalypse. It's just not. I mean, it's meaningful. It has more effect on people who are straining at the edge of their finances to get a mortgage, just to get the house that they want. But 4.2, 4.3%, that's all it is. And it's over. It's here. So 
the consequences are finished. A three-week run-up of massive pre-approvals. Some people did buy, absolutely they did, and contributes to the absolutely crazy level of volume in the mortgage business right now. So. Right, and slows down turnaround times and workload for underwriters and people. So do you think it'll actually have the intended effect though? So when they came up with this idea of the stress test, presumably they're doing it because they're thinking the housing market's going too fast and they're trying to slow it down. Will it actually work, do you think? What kind of effect would it have? You know, 4.3% should have no effect. How could it really? And I may say, well, you know, it'll prevent people from getting the 1,140,000 house that they really should get. Eh, I don't know about that. I mean, like, is what I guarantee you, Scott. And you can't get these numbers because the lenders won't tell you. But if you could find a way to examine the vast increase in multiple applicants on mortgage applications, like I will guarantee you the last six months and the coming six months will have more situations where there's more than two applicants on the mortgage application than the history of the Canadian mortgage business. Right. So in other words, people are trying to find any methodology, get a bigger gift from your parents, stress them to go deeper into their lines of credit on their houses, add three people, four people, five people to the mortgage application in order to qualify. So the question becomes, does a 4.3% reduction in total mortgage buying power have a real big impact on this market? I think the answer is probably no. Right. Okay. So what do you think would, I guess, two questions, does it need to be, you know, slowed down? And if it did, if you were the guy in charge that you could actually make those decisions, what would you do? I'm curious, like, cause the way your brain thinks you're very creative. So what do you think? Well, you know, these really are super easy answers, but they're difficult. They're difficult for politicians. So we just have to start from one key premise. The price of homes in Canada is batshit crazy. That is where we have to start. We can't step around that premise. We have to say, okay, have prices gone up too much? Should the prices in North Bay, Revelstoke, Brandon, Moncton, is there any sense that they've gone up 35 to 40% in 12 months? Is that, does that seem like a normal sort of economic environment to you? What do you think, Scott? Does that seem normal? No. It's certainly not sustainable. And it's the best, you know, technical term you could apply is batshit crazy. Okay, right. that is absolutely the best technical term. So if that's batshit crazy and the government stands back and says, you know what, let's wave a flag at this. Let's just wave at this and say, we're going to do something with the stress test. Because at the end of the day, I don't really believe OSFI is a completely independent entity, especially when the Department of Finance decided the next day that they would do the same thing with insured mortgages as Aussie was doing with uninsured conventional mortgages. There's context to it. It's being done together. So if it's the choice of the government to do this, then they thought there was something to worry about. There was something worth worrying about for sure, but not enough to worry about to get any blowback. If you listen to politicians talk about this, the main thing they say is we've got a big issue to contend with. We think prices might be going up too fast, like 40% in Revelstoke. I mean, 50% in Moncton. Yeah, maybe they're going up too fast. Right. So we think it's going up too fast, but we cannot harm anyone 
who has enjoyed this increase in the equity in their home. It's too damaging. It's too problematic. Right. So if in reality, prices should come down 25%, which by the way, wouldn't even take them back to where the prices were a year ago or 18 months ago. Yeah. So if you think about that for a minute, it's really staggering. But anyway, let's just say that government's position is we can't do that because it's too damaging to the people who have equity in their homes. There'd be too much fallout, too much difficulty, too much pushback. So it becomes a kind of absurdity that the government is only willing to make tiny, minute changes and hope that it slows down all on its own, which it may, which it absolutely may, and not do anything fundamental at all to change the batshit crazy price of houses in Canada. So put me in charge. I take the prices of houses in Canada down 35% in three months. What would you do? How would you do it? You do mortgage rule changes. You do mortgage rule changes. You just make it really tough to buy rental properties, which has a bad impact in that there's a great need for rental properties in this country. You increase the stress test even more. It's so easy to make mortgage rule changes. It's effortless. Right. But it has this really massive effect on people's lives. Like, I'm not out of sympathy with the government. The government is in a tough spot. I mean, like, anything we do is going to leave some people mad at us. And the truth is, the people who are probably have the most reason to be mad at us, who are people who are like age 25 to 30, who are thinking to themselves, I'm never going to own a house ever, unless it's in Nunavik. Actually, right. houses are pretty expensive in Nunavik, but like, it's got to be in like 25 minutes outside of Fort Mac or 30 minutes outside of Thunder Bay or like just in the farthest reaches of the world. I'm never going to be able to own a house in the city I was born in. That's terrible. I might as well just move to the U.S. where there's plenty of very low housing cost, beautiful cities available for people. So that's a bad thing in the end for those 25 to 30 year olds. But it's a slow creeping bad thing as opposed to a I'm going to vote you sons of bitches out bad thing that is if you take drastic action on mortgage rules. Right. So it's a political question that's hard to find an answer. So to. they can say they did something. Hey, remember we did this stress we test, this. but it yes. wasn't enough to upset the majority of their voters who would be like, hey, wait a second, you just took 25% of the equity out of my home that I just won, by the way. It's kind of like my lotto winnings or yep. my casino winnings. It's like, hey, the yep. casino winnings. And now, so yep. I get that. Do you think there's any psychological effect that this will have on the market? Because sometimes the psychology of it, like, you know, changing this, people start talking. I always think of the real estate market as like, a party and there's music playing and everybody's having fun and then the music changes something happens this outside event could be like somebody bombs somebody or, and then all of a sudden the music changes and people go i'm going to wait and see what's going to happen do you think that there's any like you know is this a big enough thing to actually trigger that no but it's maybe just happening all on its own right like maybe didn't even need this to start to happen you got something called pull forward when you look at big macro markets So has having those super, super low interest rates and causing everybody who lived in a 500 square foot condo to decide, I've got to get the hell out of here. COVID has taught me that I can't live here anymore. I'm Mm going to leave. So you take two different things that combined into one thing, which is demand. And people who might've bought a house in 2022 or 2023 or 2024, living in a condo, renting a condo, 
owning a condo, all of a sudden said, nope, got to do it now. By the way, when we say the lowest interest rates in history, Frances Donald did something interesting the other day. She put out a piece that it really is the lowest interest rates in the history of the world, because she can go back and study that in the Babylonian civilizations 5,000 years ago, interest rates ran around 4%. Like there was interest back then. Mm-hmm. So they ran around 4%. So, so bankers have been here forever. <laughs> well, lending. Lending has been here lending forever. Is been bankers, here. Yeah. Banking is actually like a renaissance concept. But yeah, there's been interest on stuff. There's been interest charged on lent something for 5,000 years. And the lowest 4,000, 5,000 years ago was 4%. When we say lowest rates in history, we ain't fooling. We could say the lowest rates in 5,000 years, just compared to Babylonian. That would be a great marketing piece. That's a great Marty piece. She really is one of the smartest people you could ever run into is this Frances Donald. If you could ever get her on the podcast, she'd be a get. Okay, I'll, I'll reach out to her. She's fantastic. But anyway, bottom line is lowest rates in the history of the world. Yeah. And then people not wanting to live in their 500 square foot condominium anymore for obvious reasons during COVID. And so you've pulled forward, in some cases, two or three years worth of people who might have bought later right. into this year, into the last 12 months. So it may just slow down all on its own and it's going to have to, because, you know, like I said, we're seeing more three person, four person, five person applications now than ever. People are going to run out of family eventually. I mean, people are going to stop and say, yeah, I've just got to pause, hit the pause button on this. Right. Or you've been unsuccessful in 11 bidding wars on a house and you just say, I'm not doing this anymore. Right. So. The market can easily exhaust itself without this 4% reduction in buying power. It's quite likely. You know, I think about part of what you're talking about, I call it the great migration. So what's happened with COVID is that a lot of people that had to go to a particular place to work are now realizing, hey, I can work from home. The employers are like, hey, this is working. I can get rid of my office leases. And people are moving out of major centers and it's, you know, pushing money. I know that in our community, we're seeing people come up from Vancouver. They're working from home. It is definitely affecting, you know, the demand side of it. So in the real estate bubble, why is Moncton or were these places going up 40%? What's your thoughts on that? Well, just what you said, it is a lot of work from home stuff that may or may not turn out to be a big surprise in 2022. Like your employer says, yeah, no, come on back. I mean, it's time to come back. Is your team in Uh, office or are they at home? It's about 80% out of office, Yeah, 20% in office. In Ontario, we are a essential industry like dry cleaners and banks. Okay. And we're allowed to have everybody here if we want. We still have about 80% at home. I would suspect by October, they'll all be back with maybe a couple exceptions. So, okay. This is a secondary question to this, but because you got me thinking how many people on your team and do you think you'll go back to the traditional way or do you think you'll actually have people work from home more? What do you think? I think that they'll work from home. We paid for like full workstations. We weren't like cheap, like a bunch of the big lenders and just told the people to work off their own laptops. We like put full multi-screen workstations to everybody's home. We even paid to put direct phone lines to their homes so they wouldn't have to work off a crazy phone app. So we went to a lot of expense to build out like fully functional workstations at people's homes. We even sent office chairs home. I mean, I can tell you about a couple of lenders who sent all their people home and still have them perched on kitchen chairs looking at their laptops with nothing else. But that's another story for another day. That's the next episode. (laughs) That's the next episode. So the uh, bottom line is we're not pulling the workstations back. So if there's a snowstorm or your kid's sick or something of that nature happens, yes, absolutely. You can stay home. You're set up for it. You can stay home. It's not a problem. But here's what we discovered. People who are in kind of a pure sort of accounting or document push function, 
they work very well from home because the stuff comes at them. They have to process it in a right. certain way that's completely understood, whether it's commissions for the accounting people or whether it's settling down payment or income for the lender. It comes at you and you have to push it out. And then another one comes at you. You have to push it out. So it's a cycle that keeps and you And you can quickly see time. the work piling up. If they were not doing that, you'd be like- 100%. So 100%. Very easy so. to tell, right? The problem though is that in any consumer-facing environment where you're in the actual sales function itself, it's miserable to try to train. You can't train effectively. You can't coach effectively. You can't deal with the moment by moment policy changes. You can't deal with the sort of underwriting layers and the underwriting nuances that just show up on a daily basis. You know, if you're in a sales function and you've got the client on the phone and you just give them enough of an answer, but you don't think it's a good enough answer, you want somebody to talk to right away to be able to walk to their office and say, hey, there's got to be a better answer than this on this product question. So what should I do? Okay. And that's not to say people aren't perfectly trained. They could be brilliant, highly established people, but it's just this dynamic of the sales process in our sort of organization that, you know, it's not just an individual agent doing everything in his basement. Obviously we've got a bunch of people doing a lot of different functions and working as teams and the customer facing piece I've talked to a lot of other companies about it. I've talked to the lenders about it. And their position is, yeah, some people can stay home and some people can work three days from home or four days from home, but they're all going to come back. The ones that were already working from home can stay, obviously. And maybe some of these people in accounting functions can stay, but a lot of people are going to come back. Right. People got the shock of their lives when uh, all the major U.S. banks told everybody, you need to come back to the office the last 30 days. Mm -hmm. You all need to come back. So. So you think it's great. And it'll also be industry specific. So like you said, I think it's role specific and some industries that'll work better than others. So let me ask about mortgage tech. So I'm framing it this way just because I want to dig some information out of you a specific way. But so mortgage tech that the traditional mortgage broker should worry about. You know, I don't think this way, but I know that there's some, you know, for instance, I saw Rob McLister recently posted like until one click applications come in, you know, the da, da, da. So like, what kind of things do you see? Or maybe not worry, but maybe it's things they should adopt. Like, what do you see in terms of technology that are going to disrupt the current model of business? A really good question. It's got sort of a holistic response. You know, Rob McClister was a leader in digital mortgage tech. Like the idea that, you know, we should be able to push a human being right out of the mortgage process for a very simple transaction. And, you know, he goes back in this whole idea. He's been on this thing for... 10, 12 years, to a certain extent, as of I, you know, mm -hmm. I, I was at a MPC symposium in Montreal eight years ago. And on the panel, I held up my phone and said, this is the future of the mortgage business. This phone is the future of the mortgage business. This is how people are going to get their information, their application. This is how they're going to study rates, how to study policy. They're going to buy their homes on this thing as well. Mm -hmm. There's going to be breakthroughs in virtual showings and on and on and on. So naturally, all of this has happened. So eight years later, Rob and I are right, you know, Dan Eisner's right, James Laird's right, we're all right. But we were right in a somewhat different way than we thought in that, I'll give you a great example. So Scotiabank invested tens of millions of dollars in Scotia eHome. By the way, this is no bash on Scotia at all. They invested tens of millions of dollars in Scotia eHome, their digital platform to do mortgages nose to tail, start to finish, the client didn't even need to speak to a human being except their lawyer to buy the house. Right. Okay? 
that was that good. And the person who developed it was brilliant, brilliant woman, did a fantastic job. And when it came out, it was so far in advance of every other product in Canada from every other bank and every other offering. It was crazy. It worked. It allowed them to offer extremely low rates. It was a superb product. Turned out it had one issue that slowed it down dramatically. And this is what we can learn from the United States. In the United States, there is a huge cadre of existing mortgage brokers, just like we have here. Just people working from their homes, working from offices spread out all over cities and towns mm-hmm. right across the United States. You know it. You deal with a lot of them, right? Yeah. And there's also big, big call center operations that work with digital backbones. People like Rocket Mortgage, obviously, Loan Depot. Mm-hmm extremely big, extremely successful. You know, people sometimes make fun of them. They say, well, oh yeah, haha, Rocket Mortgage doesn't have that big a share. It's not doing like 20% of the US market. Yeah, that's true, but it's also the biggest mortgage originator on the face of planet Earth, okay, right. it's Rocket Mortgage. So it's we enormous. gotta give some props to that system yeah. that does work, okay? Yeah. Here's what they found out. Pure digital, and it's gonna get better, and it's really good right now. Like I said, Scotch Eom, killer application. It was beautiful, really worked well, very customer friendly, all good. There's just something about doing a $600,000 transaction that you want to talk to a human being at some point. Okay. There is just a fact. Now you may only need a 10 minute call. You may only need a five minute call. You certainly don't need a meeting. I mean, one thing COVID has proven is the death of the face-to-face meeting in the finance business. Like it's ridiculous now. Like who would go to a bank branch to meet with somebody right now? Right. I mean, after what we've been it's, through. I like, set up a bank account recently, a business account, and I had to go in. I'm like, why do I have to go in and sign these stinking papers? Just yeah, you were literally angry, right? I yeah, mean, I'm like, I'm annoyed. I have to go in to sign these papers yeah. that that you're going to like file, and I don't know what you're going to do with them. Like, just send me something to sign digitally. You already got one of my bank accounts. Give me another one. It's annoying. You're right. So you were very annoyed at that. Imagine that it was a huge $600,000, $700,000 transaction. And you just weren't quite sure what this question is. How does this really work? God, I wish I could talk to somebody. So you either need a great chat facility or you simply need to talk to someone, okay? But not go to their branch, not go to their office, not have them come to your house. I mean, stay away from my house. I can just talk to you, okay? Mm -hmm. So what was the missing link to great digital backbones in the mortgage business is a call center. And it's just been determined that it's necessary. It's just necessary. You have to do it. Now, throw on a couple of ideas on top of that one, even though you have to do it to have the kind of success you want, you also want to have a great, and I mean great customer facing application that the client finds incredibly easy to use, a la Finmo, a la Velocity, a la Expert Pro. You need to have something that is just beautiful to work with, is simple to understand, takes the customer through a natural flow of information. Here's a big one, autofill. So if I start to type in my name and there's a whole bunch of fields that need my postal code and my address and my phone number and every other damn thing, it better autofill. Like honestly, when you hit that function on all the kinds of apps that you buy things for on retail basis, whether it's Amazon or something else, Wayfair, whatever. When you start to type in Scott, S-C-O, boom, it's all there. Everything's there. It's just appeared. Do you not feel good about that app? Oh, yeah. It's way easier. Oh, 
Yeah. So if you don't have that, you need that. That is the key to communicating with clients is ease of use and give them on that first just information gathering pain in the ass where you have to have all of the data, you have to have the birth, you know, just, just make it easy. Just make it easier, natural flow. That's table stakes. You've got to have that. You've got to have a great customer facing application system. Mm-hmm. Just have to have it. Now we can go off into talk about deal flow products and artificial intelligence underwriting products. We can branch off from there. But that really is the key table stakes to being in the mortgage broker's business today. And then so the small mortgage broker who's, you know, does whatever, 10, 15 million a year, 25 million a year. How do you think technology is going to affect them? These shifts in market? Do you think that, you know, that they're going to be fine? I contend that you need to have fantastic sales skills. I think that the sales and marketing is the key that the underwriting part of it is important. But I personally lean more towards if you can't get the clients and get them to want to work with you, the underwriting part is never going to happen. That's absolutely true. I mean, that is 100% true, is the customer relationship skills that you have to have to be successful in this business are so important. And they're more important than before. You're no longer going to be able to present it, well, don't deal with the banker. I'm going to come to your house and take your application. No, stay the hell away from my house. I don't. I, it's not convenient. Don't do that. Right. So the chance for somebody to ingratiate themselves into the customer's life is becoming much more specific. So you've got to be really, really good on the phone or in great email communication or have great templates. Those are the key skills that get you a customer today when you have the chance to do the mortgage. I have to be a little cautious on this one issue, though, that never before in the history of mortgages, and people will always say, oh, well, Butler says that because he's so goddamn old. He's like got one foot in the grave and the other banana peels. He's always talking about how in the history of the mortgage business, but it's absolutely the case today. We have never had more intense and dramatic rate competition from the institutional lenders in this country. Right. It is just balls to the wall. It's big. So, you know, and by the way, another thing to thank you for, I love mortgage broking, Facebook site, fantastic. It really helps everybody. Give yourself a pat on the back. But when you read those posts, it's just a litany of lost this to the bank on rate, lost that to the bank on rate, lost this in the underwriting exception, lost this on ratio exception. And of course, this has been going on forever, but not with this intensity, Mm -hmm. which tells me that if you want to be that mortgage broker who does 15 million a year, you do have to acquire those sales skills and those methods to deal with these objections and also something that is not talked about enough in this business, specialization. Right. You really do need specialization. I mean, I think that the danger zone for mortgage brokerages in this country is mortgage brokers who are trying to do prime A mortgages as the basis of their living and not specialize just yet. Here's a big key. Dominion Lending Centers offering the HSBC 0.99 high ratio variable that you got to wait a month for underwriting is only offered at approximately half of the normal commissions that a mortgage broker expects. So that's insightful. It's insightful that the other big player in the mortgage business, M3, runs their own call center operation, gathers their own leads in Quebec. Okay. We have a lender in the mortgage space, a couple lenders now, who are offering 
call centers to support white label products they've developed for realtors. And also we've got a lender who wants to capture all of their own existing customer base through a call center staffed by mortgage brokers. This exists. We've seen you know, all the posts about it. We know all this yeah. stuff exists. So my suggestion is that the people who have the best options moving forward are great specialists that I can, I'm in the credit fixing business. I'm in the B mortgage business. I'm in the, I'll find strategies so you can have as many rental properties as humanly possible. I will help you build your cottage with a boathouse and a bunch of other stuff that banks aren't willing to help you with. So right. those folks, you know, have a great longevity and a great upside in the business. Right. But I, go I, niche, I, go narrow. I always find it funny. You go to somebody's website and it's like, I specialize in, you know, prime, residential, commercial, first mortgages, second mortgage, third. I'm like, you don't specialize in anything. Mortgages. Yeah. Like I always think of it, it's like a contractor says, I specialize in plumbing, electrical, drywall, you know, <laughs> painting. You're like, dude, you might be able to do those things, but I guarantee you, you're not great at all of them. Right. So it doesn't work. And I agree with you that you have to become more focused over time, even just to stand out in a crowded marketplace, the more focused your attention is. So I don't know if you know this, my wife teaches sourdough baking online and yep. she has a six figure training business teaching sourdough, but she teaches home bakers how to make sourdough bread. That is niche. That is like you couldn't get more niche than sourdough for home bakers. And yet she's got a, you know, significantly sized business that most people would be shocked at. Well, I mean, this should not come as a total surprise if you look closely at me, but I am an expert on making and eating food. Okay. <laughs> and sourdough is possibly one of the most complicated baking functions you can take on. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, I mean, you know it, you're yeah. like an expert at it. Okay? Well, I eat it. I don't know how to make it, but I don't eat it. But, yeah. but you've watched the process. I mean, mm -hmm. it's involved. Okay. Yeah. It's not like just the bread machine, throw the crap in it and it'll come out with bread. Okay. You can't do that with sourdough, not the mm -hmm. sourdough you want, not the beautiful, scored, crusty, gorgeous, tasting, yeasty, yeah. all the stuff that you love about sourdough. It's complicated. So there's value in what she does. It's niche. But it's very complicated. And to right. do it well, you got to know your stuff. Mm -hmm. Simple as that. And that parallels to the mortgage industry. Okay, so this is the last question. Well, I'm going to get you back again another time because I love chatting with you, Ron. So AI, how do you think AI is going to affect underwriting or the process? Or what have you seen there? Well, we've got to realize it's a great breakthrough. And it's coming hopefully soon. Apart from the really necessary breakthrough in Canada of having a very effortless link to CRA, where CRA can confirm NOAs and make sure that that is just absolutely easy and, and bulletproof from a fraud and perspective bulletproof and all yeah. those things which is gonna you think that's coming push, it's absolutely coming i think if it hadn't been for covid we'd have had it for four months i mean mm -hmm. i'm sure we would have because it's a priority nobody wants mortgage income document fraud nobody wants it no lender wants it the government doesn't want it nobody wants it they want to get rid of it okay i know there's a lot of people saying are you sure i mean you know the income document fraud people have very very low default. And that's the crazy part. They do. There's been studies made that the mortgage income fraud people have lower default than the rest of the portfolio. It sounds crazy, but it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, it makes sense in this way. You want to buy that house and live in that house and you will move heaven and earth to make the payments. You already moved heaven and earth to get the house. You actually committed an, an a crime yeah, a fraud, crime yeah. to get the house. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, you didn't want to flip the house, flip the house is something different. You're just flipping the house. You don't care what interest rate you're paying. You don't give a damn. Okay. You know, I just want to get in, get out, flip it, paint it, put Ikea kitchen in it, sell it, make money. 
I can pay extra. I can pay a high interest rate. I don't care. But we have to put an end to it because it's a fundamental reputational risk to the mortgage brokerage industry and must end. Okay. Mm -hmm. Has to stop. It has to be absolutely known that our operations are completely clean. In some ways today, I can't talk too much about it, but I know enough to know that the incidence of mortgage income fraud in the mortgage broker space versus the commissioned bank sales rep space, I know a little bit about the numbers and mortgage brokers are actually doing okay in comparison. Right. So we got to get it out because easy, it's easy. A good solid bulletproof link to CRA eliminates all of it, totally fixes it. So let's fix it and that's on its way. The other interesting thing about IA is I see a lot of different software and I haven't seen this yet, but the first people who pull together are really, really good. We're going to grab the credit bureau information about where people work, where people live. We're going to go on to social. We're going to go on to Google and we're going to have IA do it. We're going to have a matrix study of this person instantly in 10 seconds, right. five seconds. There's and a picture of them in Cancun. <laughs> you know, you'd be like, hey, yeah. like literally. Like, hey, hey, I'm down here for the next year. Okay. Or, you know, like, boom, their criminal history comes up. Yeah, I was robbed a bank. He robbed a bank and he did this, he did that. Or boom, they own 17 properties. They're telling you they don't own any. There's a hundred things that it can tell you quickly, efficiently, without having to have a mortgage broker click on Google, click the pages, click this, click social. Right, right. Do the diligence that really is good to do. And I think it's coming, but I haven't seen it yet. Right. Interesting. So if somebody's listening to this, that's a great due diligence service app. You can do due diligence on people. Ron, this has been a great chat with you, man. I'll have you back on again. I really appreciate you taking the time and love these conversations. Scott, it's always a pleasure. And yeah, I'm dead serious. You're really up your game. You're everywhere. You're every product, every niche, every beneficial new thing. I mean, like, honestly, you should be congratulated just for the... Yeah, I'm going to show you how to hire an assistant thing. That in itself is a terrific. We're at 75 so far that we've hired. So I'm surprised like... you're not at 750. Honestly. Well, we just started it, but yes, it's continuing to grow. I think that's going to be a, an interesting service that will be hopefully valuable. Thanks, brother. We'll talk again. Okay, Scott. All the best. Hey, Loren, welcome to Ask the Expert segment. And so the question I have for you today is I get this all the time from mortgage brokers how much do I pay my assistant? And I know that you have some insights on this given the number of people that you hire. So I'm curious, how do you answer that question? Sure, so a couple top things. First of all, I think the number one thing to point out is that, and I've heard you say this before too, you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. So, you know, sometimes it can feel a bit stressful to pay more, but if you pay a bit more, you're gonna get a better quality person. So, you know, Give it that thought, pay a little bit higher and get someone that's better that's going to take on more in your business and will perform better throughout their employment with you. That I would say is the number one thing. If you're going to take anything away from this, take that. Okay, the second thing I would take away or say that, you know, is really important to note is that it is so dependent based on where you're at. So doing some research in your local area is super, super important. And so we actually, as we've now become more of a recruiting business, so we have some new kind of fun analytical aspects that we get from our hiring websites that we use. And so we did some research on this average wages of administrative assistance in Canada range from an average pay of $17.64 in some regions, all the way up to $28.58, which is a huge range. So if you're going to post a competitive job, actually attract great people, 
you have to know what the wage is in your area that's going to do that. And the last thing is, you know, then the next question is, so how do I figure that out? How do I do that? One great way is to actually go to some people that you know that they have a great assistant and ask them, how much do you pay? Ask some questions, figure out some of the details of what it is so that you can actually accurately compare. So you don't want to ask somebody that has a not so great assistant or someone that kind of, you know, drops the ball all the time or something. We don't want to clone those people. We want to find the people that are great, figure out what they're getting paid, how they're being compensated overall and how they're performing in their role. Find a few people and ask them. And then even just like some government websites and whatnot have other stats that you can look at. So you can use a combination of all these things to piece it together and figure out what is actually a good wage in your area. And Scott, I think you've talked about this, like a great comparison is like asking how much should I pay to buy a house? Well, I mean, where are you? Where, where is it? Depends, for? right? Like, uh, is it in Nova Scotia or is it in Toronto, right? It'll change so much and there's so much variance. So paying your assistant is going to be the same thing. It's really hard to give like a one word answer because there really isn't one. Right. Okay. Just so I'm clear, you pay peanuts, get monkeys. So if you want great people, be on the high end. Two, understand that it's going to vary from market to market. And three, in order to determine your market, if you don't have access to like a recruiting account like you do, that you can look at these things, a simple way to do it is to like just check with some people that are in your market that have assistance and be like, what are you paying them? And maybe a secondary question that would be saying, well, where did you start them? Because if they've been there for five years, it's a little different than somebody who's brand new. So figure out what that progression looked like so you have some raw data that you can apply to your own specific market. Does that sound right? Yes, that's totally accurate. And you know what? That last comment you just made applies to our averages as well, because these are averages. They could be people that are just starting as well as all the way up to maybe worked for 12 years experience. So the average takes that into account as well. So you have to do a little bit of calculation there to figure out what the right pay is. Make some adjustments. Awesome. Okay. So if anybody's listening to this and you're like, hey, I'm looking at hiring, you can reach out to Loren and her team at hiredin7days.com. They have fantastic service. You've hired how many people now? 75, 77 or something by the end of this week? Yeah, close to 80. Yeah. So 80 people, they're very good at it. And you had said to me just recently that we said assistant, but because of you've gone into other verticals, how do you describe it now? I would say the best way to describe the type of people that we are really accustomed to hiring right now is support staff. Right. And that's in like mortgages, but also other verticals as well. Thank you so much, Lauren. I appreciate that being part of Ask the Experts and helping our mortgage broker audience think about how much to pay their assistant. Thank you. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.